Well, Dave, it could be a quiet Thursday afternoon over here in London, <laughs> but uh, welcome everyone to the first ever episode of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. This is a platform where we will be cutting through the noise on startups, community and capital every single week through curiosity sparking conversations with founders, funders and friends. Really to set the room, we'll have a 50 minute discussion followed by a 10 minute Q&A with the audience to round things up. And really without further ado, today we're joined by a great Dave Klein. So Dave is the owner of Skill Scouter, a platform providing online course reviews and advice to help people find their optimal learning and career paths. Now, prior to Skill Scouter, Dave was COO of Core Management and subsequently co-head of recruiting at Bridgewater Associates, one of the largest hedge funds in the world with over $150 billion in assets under management. During his near 10-year tenure at Bridgewater, he recruited and mentored over 100 managers. Before Bridgewater, Dave spent over nine years at Moody's, including as a managing director at Moody's Analytics. Dave also holds an MBA from NYU Stern School of Business. So with over two decades of experience leading global teams across financial services, consulting and asset management, it's time to dive right in. So Dave, thank you so much for joining me today. Alex, thanks for having me. This should be fun. Yeah, really looking forward to diving in. I think we'll start with a little bit on you. So you spent just shy of a decade at a company known for its strong culture, being Bridgewater Associates, founded by Ray Dalio. I'd love to hear how your journey developed to you co-heading recruiting and ultimately pivoting at the end of 2020 to own SkillScouter. Yeah, perfect. So, um, you know, I ended up at Bridgewater a little over 10 years ago, mostly you know, one of those serendipitous moments, the uh, train going from Connecticut to New York City broke down three times in a week. And a headhunter happened to call me on the that Friday. And I normally didn't return their calls. But when they told me it was five minutes from my house, I returned it. And, you know, the rest is history. The, the quick version of Bridgewater is that, you know, we treated management as a craft. So, um, you know, I was brought in and then started in the research department. And, but the whole idea was you were going to move around and bring new ideas and new approaches to management to different groups. So, you know, had been in the research department, had worked in that core management group, talent, recruiting, et cetera. And, you know, as we were all, you know, kind of sitting in our Zoom calls home for the pandemic, um, and I'd spent a decade doing that, I really had a reflection of, you know, when am I going to start that business I keep talking about? And I think the real breakthrough for me was finally sort of walking away from the fact that I had to start it. You know, I had to create it from scratch. I had to wait for that one big, brilliant idea. Uh, and it's not like I could go buy it. And so, you know, left Bridgewater to go really hunt for a business. And we, you know, we kicked every the tires on everything from, you know, an oil change franchise and car washes to you know, online web businesses. And, you know, when it became, you know, my own money at stake, it was really, helpful to focus. Like, how did I want to spend my day? How did I want to spend my time? Um, and the online education space was just one I kept coming back to. Like, I loved coaching and developing and training people. I, I loved seeing, you know, access to information changing lives around the world. And it seemed like, especially accelerated by the pandemic, it was only going to keep growing. And so, you know, when we had the opportunity to buy this site, uh, we did. So that's the, that's the quick version of how we got here. 
I really love that idea just at the beginning of serendipity and then in turn treating treating management as a craft over at Bridgewater. And I think access to information and access to education is something that I'm really, really behind there, Dave. I guess in preparation for this podcast, I came across a staggering statistic that nearly 300 employees have been at Bridgewater for a decade or longer. So why is setting culture early so important and how should a startup leader think about setting their culture? That's a great question. The, um, when I, I think culture is like a very big word and, and lots of folks will define it differently. So let me sort of start where how I would define it, right? I think about it as being, it's like the invisible glue that guides decisions and behaviors when no one is looking. So, you know, whether it's Bridgewater, where we believed in radical truth and radical transparency, you know, we backed that up with tools where we recorded every meeting that you could hear, but that's, um, that allowed everybody to kind of know what the rules were and how to operate. And if that aligned with you, if that cult, if that strong culture sort of matched your values, then, you know, we were attracting the right people, repelling the wrong people. Um, and I think that's why you start to see like a very long, we would talk about, we had a very high turnover early because of that attraction and, and repulsion and then really high retention late. Uh, and so that's, you know, sort of what I experienced when I think about that for, you know, a startup founder, you know, one of, I think the challenges you have early in scaling is like what everything starts with you. And then as you start to grow and scale, you're like, well, what am I going to delegate? Like that's a lot of questions I get from people um, when I'm coaching them in kind of these smaller companies. And I think when I think about delegating the what, you know, the which work am I going to give away um, is usually pretty easy and people can connect on that. What's harder is this concept I call the aligned how, like, how are you going to achieve that goal? Does that, do you and I agree on the path? You know, uh, to give an example, I might say, you know, look, I'd like to go, have you go hire 40 amazing, um, you know, sales associates over the next year. And I could go do that. But if I've burned relationships with a bunch of recruiters, if I've gone on campus and offended an Ivy League institutions, you know, head of recruiting, if I've done all these other bad things in route to my goal, I achieved the thing you delegated to me, but we weren't aligned on the how. And the reason that culture matters so much is because it short circuits a thousand conversations on what the aligned how is. That if we share you know, certain values and certain understandings of cultural norms and certain mythologies, then I can go operate aligned with the intent and deliver on the goal in a way that's going to be mutually satisfying. And so... Um, you know, in a, in a startup where you're moving fast and you're breaking things like that, that connectivity can become critical. Yeah, I'm really behind that idea of culture being the invisible glue that guides decisions. I think that's a really, really wonderful analogy. And I think with the example you gave there, Dave, it's important to stay true to your principles very early on. So I'd now like to ask, why is a principled approach important to a well-functioning team? And should an idea meritocracy, one that was employed at Bridgewater, be that North Star? Yeah, I would. Let's take those as related but separate concepts. And so, you know, I would say for the first one, like this concept of operating from timeless and universal principles, I think that can apply fairly universally to good effect. Right. It 
it allows people to kind of reapproach new problems independently. You know, I think if you, we've all probably read different things about Elon Musk and the way that he was able to, you know, start SpaceX or Tesla was to not accept everything as is, but to kind of go back and ask the questions that led to the fundamental principles of space travel or electric vehicles or battery storage. And so applying that to any company allows you to sort of have that independent thinking. It also has the advantage of compounding that like, once we've sort of agreed on, well, this is the set of principles that make sense. We don't have to sort of re-legislate that. We can take and apply that logic to similar situations over and over and over, as opposed to re-legislating everything as though it's new. And so I would say, I think it's pretty fundamental to the people who want to go fast and compound to to take a, a principles approach. On the your question on idea meritocracy, I think it's more nuanced. You know, like I think it'd be very easy to say, um, probably most people on this call would intellectually agree with the idea of, uh, of course, I want the best ideas. Like who who doesn't, right? That's an easy, it's an easy intellectual thing to agree with. But I think the implementation becomes really important. Like if you think about being, you know, an investment manager where the best of the best get things right 55 out of 100 times, like barely above coin flip, then building into your system, uh, you know, this idea that everybody's going to fight for the best ideas and debate, um, especially when you're playing with really high stakes of billions of dollars, like that, that might work, like that might make sense for your business. I think about a smaller startup, you know, and I'm like, I don't know, like, do you want to have lots of debate built into your system when, you know, each higher each new customer might be existential, you know? So maybe maybe it's not an idea meritocracy that you're looking for. Maybe it's more like a, a, you know, an idea innovation engine. Like you want to have a culture that is all about like shipping, testing and revising. And you want that to be as fast as possible. You know, if you add debate into the middle of that cycle, you might lose. And so I would, I would, I would say it's worth thinking about um, and then being very thoughtful if you want to try to implement it. But I don't know that um, you could simply, you know, read the principles book and say, we should implement that. Cause I, I don't know that it would work in every environment. Yeah. I think that's a wholly, uh, a wholly great response there, Dave. I think debating can definitely slow things down. So having that idea that you gave this idea innovation engine that can definitely speed up processes and make things a lot more efficient, especially with these, earlier startups. I think we'll now branch across from culture setting to leadership crafting. So to turn this back to you again, Dave, what's the most important characteristic that a startup leader should possess? You know, I have to admit it's a tie in my mind. So why don't we, why don't we hit them both? Um, I, I think that it's a tie between self-awareness and consistency. So on the self-awareness side, um, when I think about a, a founder, right, you're going to show up with all of your, all of your strengths and superpowers and like all of your warts and weaknesses. And as you think about who you, you know, who you want to interact with, who you want to hire, the customers you want to pursue, how you want to position yourself in the market, et cetera, um, when it's just you being deeply self-aware of how to really amplify and leverage those strengths and how to neutralize and sort of or complement those weaknesses with other people, 
that becomes like, I think so critical to kind of go from zero to one and one to 10. The reason I said consistency is when I, you know, maybe it's a trope, but the idea that, you know, ideas are cheap and execution's expensive. I think the people who show up day after day after day, the ones, you know, there's so many founder stories where, you know, it was a hundred failures before, you know, the success where, you know, the, the authors and the, um, you know, screenwriters who pitch their movies or books 10, 15, 20 times to a resounding nose that are now all some of the most famous that we know about. Um, you know, I think that a lot of times the success is the people who are willing to kind of show up longer and more regularly than anybody else. You know, I, I know I, you know, you and I have gotten to know a little, each other a little bit via Twitter. I think we both see that, you know, that, you know, the people who are on there day in and day out and, you know, writing even on the days they don't necessarily feel like it, you know, they are the ones who ultimately, I think, achieve a higher level success. And so, um, you know, and especially early on in a startup when it's all very often concentrated on you as a solopreneur or you as a leader of a very small team, you know, that that's really critical. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. Success definitely is attributable to the people who show up regularly day in day out i think by just showing up you and actually shipping whatever that might be you're already 80 percent the way there i guess turning this question on the flip side what would then perhaps be the biggest mistake early leaders make you only want to do one (laughs) (laughs) we can do more Um, no no i was gonna say you know i i thought about this a little bit because i didn't want to I think there's easy ones, right? They're the ones that make the rounds on social media all the time. Like, oh, not firing fast enough or not delegating fast enough, which I think are, they're true. Like oftentimes people will, you know, suffer bad employees too long. And that's probably extra critical with startups. You know, founders will keep their hands in everything and micromanage for too long. And, you know, that can demotivate people or just doesn't create enough, you know, distance and leverage, you know, my my sense, you know, and whether this is for startup founders or even kind of first time managers, um, I think the biggest mistake they make is wanting to exert their authority um, like too early, too often and not with the right intention. Right. And so what I mean by that is, um, you know, if you're a startup founder, you've hired your first head of sales, you've hired your your your, your first head of tech, et cetera. Hopefully you've hired them because they're bringing something to the table you didn't have, right? Like they're complementary to you in a meaningful way. You're also bringing something to the table that they don't have, right? You have the ambition to found it. You have the idea. You have your superpowers. I think too often, you know, leaders like I have to exert my authority across all domains. And it's like, well, then why did you hire these people, right? And so this idea of bringing intention and saying, okay, like, what is the picture I have of them? And what is the picture I have of myself? And where should I be more of a, where should I be more of a listener? Or where should I use great questions to kind of unlock them and connect them to what I'm doing? And then where should I exert my authority? Because there's this, you know, this idea of a, a hierarchy of merit, like I'm more experienced in that thing, or that is my domain of expertise. And so I think that um, that would be the one I would point at, you know, that, you know, how did you get in there? And, um, you know, even though you're in charge, you know, build trust, build relationships, influence people, et cetera, versus, you know, relying on the, the built-in power dynamic. 
Yeah, I'm totally with you there. I think wanting to exert your authority without the right intention is definitely not the right way to go. I'm a big believer in that a good leader shouldn't be above you. They shouldn't be beneath you, but always beside you. So being very careful about how you expend that leadership capital of yours. Yeah. Um, what, do you, what do you think is the biggest mistake that the startup founders make? Yeah, I, I, I would say perhaps hiring too soon um, and understanding that your ability to achieve a lot with either yourself or your co-founder is significantly profound. So only bringing on people when necessary, um, I think is absolutely the right way to go because either A, you're, you'd be excessively burning cash and B, um, this can also lead to your point previously, Dave, of micromanaging and getting too far in the weeds with other people's business when you should be effectively delegating through prioritizing and executing. So I'm really big on that one, but I think both of these in turn can shift, at least shift the the founder's mindset to going, look, okay, the bigger picture is important. So let's be very careful about understanding what not to do and at least how to avoid these mistakes. Yeah. Hey, let me give you a C on yours. Um, I had in my, in my cohort course, um, uh, one of my former colleagues, Anna Harmon, who's the CEO of uh, this kind of piercing disruptor called studs came on. Um, and we were talking a lot about this concept of like hiring slow or hiring fast, fast firing, et cetera. And, you know, in that we were talking a little bit about, um, you know, she'd gotten some questions from, from the group around what happens when, you know, she has to fire someone or someone leaves. And she was saying, you know, she's really slow to hire. In fact, many times, even still in the COO role, and I think they're now approaching 200 employees, um, she will encourage her managers or depending on the role, she herself will sort of take on that role for a small period of time, really for the reason of C, which is like to go in there and really deeply understand the role to like understand the problems, if, you know, if it's customer facing kind of hear through, hear what the customers are, are saying or doing through that role, you know, get to know the team a little bit, but to really be able to size up the next hire so that the probability goes way up um, that they're going to be successful. I guess it almost adds a D, which is she said many times she's gone in there and been able to cleverly either redesign, reallocate and not even need to rehire. And so I think your your hire slow thing is probably uh, I think you're right. Like I think they they hire too fast, and there's a lot of innovation and opportunity in terms of going slower and using other levers. Yeah, I'm definitely with you there. There's a great book, The E Myth Revisited, by Michael Gerber, and essentially the theme is if your business depends on you, you don't have a business, you have a job, and it's <laughs> almost the worst job in the world, right? So I think being able to create these systems that are easily able to replicate and almost pass on and understand, look, what roles do I need to fill inside that business? And then for each position in, inside that organization, identifying the result that that position is obviously responsible for, but also doing as much as you can until you, you, you're almost sort of hitting the, hitting the, the rev limiter almost, and then yep. going like, okay, damn, it is definitely time to, to bring someone on. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, DHH and Jason Freed uh, talk a lot about that in their books as well. So it seems to be good company of some very successful founders who uh, kind of push into that red line before they keep adding. I think so. I think so. So 
moving on from this, Dave, what sure. would be the most important ways that a leader can build and instill trust within their teams? Yeah, I think, look, um, the, the snap answer is listening, which is super cliche, um, but that's because it's so critical. But I, um, so if you're not listening, then you're, that's, you're going to have a hard time building trust with anybody, whether that's a founder or your partner or your family. But um, going past that, I think the number one, when I look across leaders who I think really build trusting organizations, the type of people who will follow them other places, the ones who will put in the extra effort. It's interesting because it's, it's not obvious, but, um, but it's consistency. Like it is the people who um, they are deeply consistent in how they show up with you. So you, you know exactly what to expect. You know, that might be, you know, that they show up and prioritize your one-on-ones. That might be that they always give you feedback in a particular way. And part of that is it's sort of um, when people are erratic, right? When, when we've, all worked, we've all worked with and we've all interacted with erratic people, you're on guard, right? You're kind of going into that lizard part of your brain to be like, do I have to, is this fight or flight? You know, am I going to have to defend myself? What is that? Versus when it's consistent and expected and you know how it goes and it keeps going that way, it starts to become um, much easier than to open up, to be vulnerable, to escalate your problems, to, to kind of go through that journey of like sharing beyond the workplace that starts to build like the authentic, genuine trust. And so I think um, it's not to sh- say you should be entirely predictable and never shake it up because I think that can be a useful tool. Um, but I think too many times managers have the ratio upside down, right? That they are occasionally consistent and and typically erratic. And I would say you want to be consistent 95, 96% of the time. And then when you really need it in a moment, you know, you can bring out an unpredictable move to sort of shake people up, et cetera. But um, that would be, that would be my thought on trust. What have you seen work? I think listening the one the one the one that you mentioned there dave i think the ability to listen um is such an undervalued attribute you know we we all want to have the hot answer the right answer but you know we we have two ears and one mouth for a reason i forget the great philosopher who once coined that term but i think it's so so true Uh, not only in life but specifically in business we've got to be great listeners um up and down the chain of command at least in your answer, Dave, you mentioned expectations, and I think there's such a great importance in managing those expectations, at least through under-promising, over-delivering, and being consistent on your actions there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we should, let's, do you want to dive into expectations for a minute? Because I think it's, um, it's interesting for whether you're, you were on this call for you know, you're founding your own startup, whether you're working at a corporation and trying to manage up. Like, I think expectations are this like massive lever that almost everybody underutilizes. Is it worth spending a couple of minutes on that? Absolutely. Let's dive in. So um, it's just, it's top of mind because I, I just spent some time, um, you know, with one of my clients and we were going through this in, in pretty heavy detail, but, you know, I think if you read through a number of things I've written, a lot of it will be around, um, and we talked about a little bit about it earlier, right? Like, how do you how do you set expectations? And, it, it, and the how 
I think is the part that people get wrong, right? So, you know, I might say, it was interesting, my wife and I had this debate, she worked at Google for a long time, and she was in sales. And she's like, I didn't, you know, your expectations and focusing on the how doesn't make any sense. You know, they give me a target, they'd say we need a $100 million this quarter, and I would go get $100 million, you know, $110 million this quarter, we'd all high five, because we outdid the expectation, etc. And I'm like, but it wasn't true, right? Like, I think we were talking about earlier, like Google had a strong culture, they, they were data driven, they were product driven, they engineers had certain power and that was built into like how the entire thing worked and that was all implied through that culture and through that expectation and so it was you know the concept of being quote unquote googly um meant like almost everyone could kind of describe what that meant and that allowed those the the how in the expectations and so um you know i think when you are trying to build trust with people when you're trying whether that's for the purpose of delegation or the purpose of building your company you know, reveling and sitting in the how, right? Like the, it's one of those challenges of someone who sort of has the expertise giving it to someone who doesn't is like, there's a thousand little decisions you take for granted. Um, and so you can, you know, articulate those. Like what's the process you want people to take? If there's a tool you use, what's the tool? Do they have the access they need? What is the one or two mistakes you've made when you did this that you should help them avoid? You know, all of those take five minutes, but are a massive transfer of knowledge and information that empower them to meet or beat your expectations. The other advantage is kind of connected to the trust building piece in that conversation about like setting expectations on the how is you, you turn it into a collaboration, right? They might have a better idea. They might want to approach it differently. Their superpowers might be different than your superpowers. And so you're giving them a forum to actually reset your expectation. And so now down the road, when they do something differently, you knew it was coming. And so you're not going to blow it up because it doesn't look right to you. You had already agreed to it up front, or you would agree to the experiment that they're going to run. And when you're going to either cut it off and have them do it your way, or, or what's going to be the gate to keep going. And so I think it's sort of like interconnecting some of these pieces we've been talking about, right? Like that's, that is a component of the idea of meritocracy that you could create. That's how you're going to build trust. That's going to be turning on your listening point. And it's all at this, at this like interaction that we often skip, which is like setting expectations on the how. So anyways, I, I just wanted to share that because I was kind of connecting all the pieces that we've been talking about to this point. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it's a very nice sort of round off to this section on leadership. Just to conclude this, I love the idea that expectations are the implicit drive given by the company that you that you just mentioned there Dave mm -hmm. you also said on setting expectations on the how so if they have a better idea great but I think taking that one step further even if their idea is as good as yours or say just marginally below at least giving them that ownership on the idea to pursue that plan I think it would definitely build the drive and interest of the team to the objective. 100% aligned. Um, I think at one point I wrote a thread and I had a line there that said, even people doing it 80% your way, you know, if you had five of them, that's 400%. So you win and they win. Uh, and I agree. I think if they feel autonomy, uh, you know, people always like to, people were much more willing to invest in something that's their idea than yours. Uh, so I think that's, that's smart. Excellent. We'll now branch across to 
hiring and actually hiring winning teams. So Dave, why is hiring a winning team so critical, especially for early stage startups? Well, I th- you know, I think there's probably a couple obvious answers and then maybe I'll layer in a third, right? So you, the first one's just going to be on a relative basis, it's probably expensive. Like you're probably going to, if you're actually hiring and moving past, you know, freelancers and consultants, et cetera, you're probably hiring for a big role, you know, someone who's going to be complimentary to you. They're also going to have to be impactful, right? Like this is, you have very limited resources. You're going to need them to really be a star. And so getting it right um, is, is a massively, you know, amplifying uh, and success, you know, success accelerating moment or the wrong hire could be the kind of the end of a good idea. And then I think the third, um, which is one that people might underprice, and it sort of ties to your idea of of hiring slowly. I think it's so important because um, people underprice how much complexity each additional person adds. And so if you think about it, um, it's almost like it's like an exponential function, right? Like when you're by yourself, there's no one to have meetings with. There's no one to keep along. There's no one to have common expectations. There's no one to worry about the culture, et cetera. And then you add one person. And so now you have one of those. But when you add the second person, and now there's three of you, you didn't go from one to two interactions, you went from one to three, right? It's not just, you know, A and B and B to C, but it's also A to B. Now you add D, and that's going to add three more interactions on top of that. So you quickly go from one to three to five, and that number gets very big, very, and very complicated very quickly. And so each one of those, um, you really want to get right. And then you want to be very sparing, you know, that you want to, like you said, really do it when you need to do it because you're, yes, it will cost you money. Yes. You'll get leverage, but it is also going to like dramatically change the dynamics as well as like what you need to put in place to sustain the culture, uh, to, uh, keep everybody aligned, et cetera. And so I think that's, um, probably far, far more important when you're kind of going from zero to 10 than any other time in a, in a, company's kind of history. Yeah, I think it's important to be very deliberate about what you mentioned there, the incremental effect of adding one more person as the startup scaled and how that dynamics and at least the ability to sustain that culture ensues. I think going from a very, very early stage to say seed or series A where you're going from friendships to having to transition over to these more formal management techniques. Um, I'd love to hear, Dave, at least from your experience, at least how how does that impact culture with regards to, oh, look, it's it's Dave. I've been with him since day one. It's just been us three versus now. Goodness me, the team has expanded to, you know, 25 plus people and the relationships or at least the depth of relationships are losing out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the um, it was interesting. I was just talking to a founder earlier this week, uh, and it was, you know, he was talking about um, sort of running up against some of what you're describing, right? He's getting to, uh, you know, I think Ray talked about it in his book. When he got the 50 people was when he could stop knowing the, the, the holiday gift to give everybody. Um, this founder is kind of in the mid-30s and feeling the same thing where it's like, I just... I've always been the glue. I've always been the central hub and I can no longer do it and kind of sustain it. And so um, 
I think that's where you end up falling back on, you know, those, like you said, those people who've been with you along the way and are they going to carry the culture in the way that you've all been carrying it so far? And then I think there's a second piece of it, which is, um, you know, and this is sort of like a meta point on, on expectation setting, but sort of being honest with yourself about, you know, what aspects of the culture are un, they're non-negotiable. You know, you, these can't change whether you're one or a hundred or a thousand or a hundred thousand people and which one of them, in some cases, I think sometimes they are going to be stage level, you know, that some of the things, maybe you were all about going fast and breaking things when you were zero to 10, but once you have a revenue generating company or you've taken on institutional money, et cetera, you might have to actually be more process oriented. You might have to have more checks and balances and that's okay. Right. That's just sort of acknowledging that the culture, if you still hold it as the glue around decisions and behaviors, the types of decisions and the types of behaviors, you know, what are the ones that make you unique and different? And then what are the ones that are serving where you are at a point in time? And so I think it's giving yourself being intentional and giving yourself a little bit of grace that the culture is going to change. And that's probably OK. You know, and if you're going to focus on any of it, it's the it's the part that keeps you you know unique and different if you're. If you're Zappos and the the core tenant is you know, customer service orientation and being quirky, you know you're going to keep yourself focused on those, but you're obviously going to handle that very differently at, you know, a two billion dollar valuation than you did at 20 people in a in an office. Yeah, the second piece you mentioned there, the non-negotiables about culture, regardless of one or one thousand, it's all about being welcoming of that change, which I really really love that point you mentioned there, Dave. But similarly, finding that balance between that welcoming of the change, but also being grounded by the systems of the business. It's hard. I mean, right? I mean, I think that's why we see a lot of stories of, um, you know, sometimes founders, the company outgrows them, right? Like that the, the culture is so inextricably tied to who they are and what they're like, and they don't want to evolve with it. And so a lot of times, I think it's why you end up with some serial founders, you know, like that they sort of do it and then they hand it off because it demands that it demands that change and they don't want to change with it. And I think some founders make the mistake of holding on through that and, and it actually can hold the companies back. Yeah, that's great. I think the birth of the serial founder is definitely or at least is highly attributable to the inability to change and at least being rigid in your processes and your principles. I think moving this on now to, or at least remaining within the hiring remit, why is hiring exceptional talent so hard, Dave? Um, I mean, look, there's obviously much ink spilled on the supply and demand and the great resignation, but I would say the honest diagnosis is most people suck at it. <laughs> most people are pretty bad recruiters. They're pretty bad at hiring people. Um, if I if I broke that down and said, like, what's typically, you know, the, the mistakes that people made or, or you can kind of walk through the entire cycle. So I'd say it usually starts first and foremost with um, they're, they hire when they need people. Right. They, they start recruiting when the pain is really acute. So we talked earlier about not hiring too fast. Um, but I think of recruiting and hiring as being different. Like recruiting is the process to, like, cultivate and identify and find the people you need well before when you need them. Hiring is when you actually make the decision to bring them in. And so 
even if you are being very slow to hire, you should be long to recruit, right? And so I think the biggest mistake people make are they wait until that pain is acute and they just discovered the problem and they weren't anticipating it. And now they're stuck. Now they have to go do it the crappy way. They have to jump on LinkedIn and put up their job description with 75 other thousand job descriptions that sound exactly the same and only really attract the you know 10 to 15 percent of people who are exceedingly loose in the pocket at that very moment in time and so the best recruiters are way ahead of that they are cultivating the 7 to 10 to 15 people they need in a particular role six months 12 months 18 months in advance so you're not um you're not going to hire a head of sales the second you need them you're talking to 10 heads of sales well in advance of that so, um and you're using that to like buy down risk. You're getting to know them. You're getting to see what they do in the world. You're getting them to know the company. You're actually making the, the hiring process much simpler because you've extended the recruiting process to be much more organic and authentic. So I think that's, that's the first place people break. Um, I think the second thing that makes them pretty bad recruiters is they don't actually know what they want. And so like, you know, the best recruiters are able to kind of match a very high fidelity picture of the job they have, and then tell a very descriptive story of the types of people they want to put in that role. And so instead of it being a giant exercise of sifting through, you know, hundreds of thousands of inbound resumes, they're able to say, well, this person with, you know, this particular set of experiences and skills and this, these preferences and these superpowers, you know, there's 16 of them and they are in these places and I'm going to talk to all 16. Um, probably a little bit more than 16, but you kind of sort of get the idea of like really, it's almost like persona building for websites. Like it's that rich and that deep of an understanding. Um, you know, then I think the third thing when you kind of move further down the funnel and you start talking to people is they actually don't know how to assess the right people. So they end up having to hire too much because they hire badly. And so um, many people think of recruiting and think of hiring as like, well, we, you know, we find some people, then we do some interviews. And I would say, you know, if you're relying solely on interviews, you are um, you're 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 behind and probably getting the worst view you could possibly get. You know, the best recruiters will go figure out how can I get a look at real work. You know, how do I get to see, you know, the the activity that I'm hiring for? How can I actually see them do that? Do they already do it in their existing job? Great. How can I go you know, taste and touch that? Um, can they do a freelance project for me over a weekend? Can they, you know, this is why internships are actually pretty valuable, et cetera. But can you invent a way without putting the candidate at risk of if they're at a current job, losing their job, et cetera. But can you see the real work? You know, if you have to do interviews, can you design it in a way that produces that work? You know, so that's, that would be another one. And then, you know, that the, the end would be also be like people, they can't close. So they've gone through all this process. They've, proactively found these people they've designed a great job that people want they've sized up the work that they can do and then they can't close and part of that is you know telling the story of your startup and your company but part of that is kind of back to our earlier part you have to listen for that entire 6 12 18 month journey you have to listen and understand like what is it is important to bring these people in you know have they been telling you all along that they don't really want to relocate have they been telling you that remote work is like quintessential are they about to go through a life change that's going to make this challenging you know what are all of those things and you can sort of want to know that and know that you can address those objections 
before you get to the finish line. Because if you, if you can't deal with, if you can't hear the objections and you can't deal with them, you've now invested a massive amount of your time and effort to then get to the finish line and lose. And so, you know, I think it's true that there's probably a supply demand mismatch, but wow, if you just get like those four or five things right, you're going to outrun 95% of the people who you're competing with because they're doing, they're making not just one of those mistakes, they're making all those mistakes. Yeah, I'm very much with you there on not hiring when the pain is acute, at least not running around with band-aids instead of focusing on injury prevention, Dave. You you also mentioned there um, all to do with remote work. So how would you see the great resignation coming into play? Well, I, th- I mean, I think if we're kind of staying in the frame of recruiting, I think the um, it's a good news, bad news story. Uh, I think the bad news is that um, actually, let me step one, take one step back. There was a someone on Twitter had posted, you know, that all these people who were going to leave in the great resignation. And I was, it got to be so prevalent that I was like, let me ask, because I just I couldn't believe that this many people were really considering leaving their jobs. Um, and because you know, the headlines were saying 75, 80 percent of people were willing to leave or planning to leave. And so I did a, I did a poll on Twitter. I was, I was curious and I was pretty skeptical about it. And interestingly, it came back pretty confirming of that number that like, you know, 20% of the people had left in the last six months and changed jobs. Another like almost 50% were actively looking or were very much gettable. And you only had about a quarter who were like solidly in their jobs. And that's a very, very different number than I had seen all the years we were recruiting. You know, that number was much, much lower. And so the bad news, that means if you have a team of 10, that probably half of them are uh, at risk, you know? And so one of the best ways to recruit is to not have to recruit. And so I would say, but first and foremost, put your attention on the people you have and make sure they're all, you know, solidly, you know, in the boat and rowing, you know, they're compensated appropriately, you know, they are, you know, inside that, that kind of circle of trust and thriving. And then, I think it's also an opportunity, you know, like more so than ever, you know, if you have something unique to offer, a compelling story, remote work, you know, you are probably able to tap into um, a passive recruiting pool that's bigger than it's ever been. And so if you were looking to grow fast, to upgrade, uh, I think now is probably the time that it's one of the ripest times to have done it, um, at least in the last 10 years that I've seen. Yeah, I think that's a staggering statistic there. Only a quarter of people, at least from from your sample there, Dave, are solidly happy within their jobs. So their openness to shift, pivot and find the next appealing opportunity is uh, more so prevalent than ever. Um, But you also mentioned looking after your boat. um, And I'm so, so with that idea, at least putting attention back to your people, back at the core ship, the core crew, making sure everyone's squared away, happy, um, and really, really aligned with this real macro shift we're seeing right now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and honestly, that stat, like mine was the most conservative number that came back. Like all the headlines that sort of made me question what I was reading were even higher. And so, you know, whether my thing was conservative or accurate or the truth is in between, you know, a quarter, 20%, 15% of your people being stable is a pretty, it's a, it's a pretty daunting statistic to kind of be holding as a leader or a, a founder. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely with you there. Let's say you have taken someone on board and you believe that you successfully vetted the right candidate, but it actually becomes apparent instead the wrong decision was made. How do you go about dealing with a bad hire? Well, I'm probably in the, I'm probably a slightly more patient than most. And so I'll, I'll put that caveat over top of this. Um, Cause if you've done the work and you, and you've gotten to this point, it's probably cheaper to invest another month or two to make sure you've truly kind of checked all the boxes and that it's not savable, not fixable. Um, so for me, I would be spending that time first and foremost, like understanding why, like, do I really have a sense for, you know, that, that what is causing the underperformance is unfixable. Um, and a lot of times I'm shocked by the leaders who are ready to sort of move to firing, you know, sort of dismiss that investment they made to get here. They like almost forget how expensive it was. And, and instead don't actually can't articulate why, like, does this person lack the skills you thought they had? Do they, they'll, they'll shorthand it sometimes and just be like, oh, they're not a culture fit. And if you ask how so, um, they can't answer it. And so one of the things I'm constantly coaching people and pushing is just like, well, go deeper, like get to a true answer. You know, it's usually, you know, this concept of skill or will. They either don't have the skills to do the work or they don't have the desire. And then underneath each of those, some are um, some are reasons to move on because you're not going to be able to change them. Most of those are in the will side. Um, and and some of those are, are fixable once you actually understand what's driving it. And so I would I would start there. Let's assume you've gone through all of that um, and you still sort of arrive at one of those, um, you know, kind of parts of the decision tree that say it's time to it's time to leave. I think you especially with a um, especially with a startup, it's it's trying to like find that balance of being human and direct, you know, like don't don't drag it out. Don't um, try to dress it up. Just sort of and don't make it about them as a human. Make it about them as the, a person in the role like you won't make it completely non-personal because it's their livelihood, it's their livelihood, it's how they get paid. It's they took a bet on you just like you took a bet on them. But I would just sort of like don't bury the lead, treat them well on the way out, be as generous as you can. Um, and you can be generous with severance, you can be generous with helping them find the next gig, you can be, you know, generous with accommodations and recommendations. And I, I think if you do those things, nine times out of ten, if you even if you got the higher wrong you usually hired someone who's pretty good and so um if that's the case when they go into the world and get realigned to something that they really get lit up doing they'll be better for it as well um and so i'd say most of the time it's hard when you're going through that process but they're usually better for it and your you and your company are better for it so i just take it head on but i've been i've been really surprised alex the number of people i've talked to and coached who have actually never fired anybody they've instead they sort of like wait them out <laughs> or they hire around them, et cetera. And, you know, I think that that feels, you know, that feels more loyal in the near term, but I think in reality, if they're really great people and they're just misaligned, like you're actually being a little bit selfish by like not wanting to take the pain on of dealing with them. You're kind of keeping them in like a, a role where they're always going to be a C, you know, and that, that sucks for them as much as it does for you. And so like, just get past it. Yeah, absolutely, Dave. I think patience, investing that 
next month. And I think instead of dismissing your, or at least trusting your due diligence, um, going back to your point there, it's, it's an absolute balance that must be met with giving them time versus trusting your gut so that you don't detriment the organization in the long run. At least now to wrap up this section all on hiring winning teams. Dave, I'm aware you've done over a thousand performance evaluations and many <laughs> interviews along the way. So if you could ask one interview question, what would it be and why? Oh, man. I just wrote about this one, actually. My um, my one interview question that I, that I like probably the most right now is like, who would who would follow you here? Um, and the reason that I, I like that is because it um, it creates a lot of surface area for things that I think are going to be important. So it creates one piece of surface area, which is around what we talked about earlier, self-awareness, right? Does this person have a sense of like where they sit in the organization, how they're respected? Do people follow them, et cetera? And so I kind of get an angle on that. I get to see how they... Um, present themselves in the community like are they are the people following them because they're a strong leader are people following them because of their track record are people not following them um and so you can kind of see like what role are they going to play when they come into your culture into your system and, and how does that work out and then um i also like it because it sends a signal it sends a signal of like we're growing we're building and you know, we were talking about recruiting a minute ago, like recruiting isn't just the founder's responsibility, you know, and the best company recruiting is everyone, or at least especially the leaders, all the leaders responsibility. And so that idea that you're signaling, even before they walk in the door, that you want them to turn that, um, sort of turn that process on in their minds of thinking about who else should be on this team, who else is going to join this mission? How are we going to assemble the absolute best team we have? Um, I think sends a good signal and will actually deter some people who don't want to operate that way. So um, that's my go-to at the moment. Yeah, I love that question. I've definitely noted that one down, Dave. <laughs> thank you. At least now we'll we'll move on to the Q&A. So thank you, Zach, Gorev, and Lauren for patiently waiting for the 53 minutes that we've hosted this, this live um, so so hope you've enjoyed the discussion so far so feel free to call in if you have a question um, and we'll happily hand you over the mic whilst we wait for a caller dave i want to start a little something at the end of each podcast where each guest leaves a question that will be asked on the following episode so dave if you can kindly just write down a question um, not say it verbally, um, send it over to me. And what I'll do is I'll ask the guest at the end of the next episode. All right. I dig it. I'll do that for you. Excellent. And Zach, I see, I see you're up. Feel free to unmute yourself when you like, and would love to hear your question. Hey, Alex. Hey, Dave. Uh, great show. Congrats on the first episode, Alex. Uh, Dave, it's, it's been great hearing from you. Um, just had, had one quick question. Uh, that I, as someone who's, you know, at a smaller startup, I think the point you made about, not, I mean, not in charge of a smaller startup, but at a, you know, 20-person startup, the point about personal relationships and as it 
uh, as they change with the scale or the impact. And I guess my question to you is, do you think there'll ever be a time where the the fiber of a small team isn't driven by the really the personal relationships? Because I know, you know, I know a lot of the people at my current company, you know, before we all came here, I was just wondering, do you think there would be anything that could happen that would disrupt that? Or do you think that will always be kind of the foundation in a lot of ways of how companies start and how they grow? We got to get Alex's take too. My my sense is that I don't think it'll change. You know what I mean? Like I think that, you know, whether you want to call it a company, a startup, a, a tribe, a team, you know, like there's sort of always been this human instinct to want to collect and collaborate to accomplish more than you could on your own. And the thing that like binds that together is going to be the relationships between the people. You know, like some of the best teams I've been on have resulted in people who've stayed my friends for years or decades past, right? And if you look at, you know, one of the things I write a lot about will be, I've been studying a lot of the coaches, right? So whether that's Greg Popovich or Coach K, et cetera. And they emphasize that so much. Like they actually put a lot of intention into almost like accelerating the collisions amongst their teams that are changing every year to ensure that the personal relationships um, sort of come together and, and gel faster. And so the other piece of data I just give you is um, having been through, you know, I've kind of been at this 20 plus years. And so there's been some, I've experienced both kind of company crises or even like global crises that have impacted companies. And one of the things you see in those moments of like hardship or tumult or change is those bonds actually go up, they don't go down. So you might think, wow, this impact's gonna come in and pull this apart. But the teams, um, more times than not, it's like the personal relationships actually strengthen and pull together. And so I, I'd, I'd be awful surprised if, the, if there was gonna be a, a, a material shift, even if whether it's us getting remote or decentralized, et cetera, I think humans will always sort of like wanna find a way to like, that magnet will keep, keep attracting. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I'm with you, Dave. I don't think so either. I mean, us as social beings, we, we want to be around other people, right? So cultivating those relationships is key, especially early on. Um, and Dave, to your point there, on personal relationships, they they definitely solidify everything that we've chatted about today, whether that be culture um, and at least how, how those relationships trickle down from that of a leadership position. Yeah. And then a piece that's interesting right now is just how the, how technology is shifting that a bit. I mean, I think about like amazing the, you know, the handful of us who are on this call that are possibly sprinkled all around the world. It's like a set of collisions that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. Um, You know, and so that might, some of the, the, the specific who's and the where's might change and how we organize that. But I think the, the personal bonds will, you know, I think if anything, they can transcend whether we're in the same spot. Absolutely. Zach, great question. And Gaurav, Lauren, please feel free to call in if you have a question. Otherwise, Dave, I have so, so enjoyed doing this one. Um, Everything from leadership, hiring right, knowing when to make the call on firing or patience waiting it out i think the the knowledge and bombs you've dropped today has been truly truly valuable so 
thank you for coming on my friend alex thank you for having me i um you know i'm gonna i'll reserve my right to call dibs on episode 100 you know because i know that the same consistency i've seen from you uh you know on twitter is going to probably show up here and so uh, i can't wait to see you keep breaking through the noise Dave, really appreciate that. And episode 100, it will have to be. Mark's already in the diary. <laughs> Done. Excellent. Well, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, it's, been a, it's been a handful of people on this first one, which is uh, a handful more than I actually expected. So thank you all for tuning and staying and listening intently. Um, Dave, and to all of our listeners, it's been a, a real, real pleasure. And I'll catch you soon on the next one. Thank you very much.